I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in our series, An Alternative Society. Benedictine monks vow to spend their entire lives amongst the same Christian community. But us modern Americans have been sold wanderlust and upward mobility as virtues of the enlightened. What does it mean to be devoted to a people and a place? Um, During a a time of of plagues and war, somebody called St. Gregory the Great. I'm hoping he didn't come up with that. I'm sure his friends gave him that moniker. St. Gregory the Great, he was a 6th century Italian pope. He he didn't write about, he sat down to create this massive volume, and it wasn't about violence or death, though that was kind of the wallpaper of his life. He instead drafted a chronicle of miracles and signs and wonders and healing. You can read the whole thing online easily with a Google search. Uh, he structured the collection as a conversation between himself and a deacon of the church called Peter, and he calls the whole thing Dialogues. Book two of Dialogues is devoted entirely to stories about someone called St. Benedict, who is often referred to as the father of Western Christian monasticism. So if you read about things like monks and monasteries, ancient and modern, chances are there's a connection to St. Benedict. In fact, when you enter the main level of the visitor center at Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon, you'll find a statue of St. Benedict to your immediate right, one of my favorite pieces among the many works of art on display throughout the abbey. And at the saint's feet, there is a raven with a loaf of bread in its beak. It sort of looks like a bagel, but whatever. Um, And since I'm a professional, you know, I looked it up. I uh, wanted to know about the origin of bagels. It turns out we think that the bagel was created by Jewish communities in Poland around the 16th century, so it wasn't a bagel. Apparently, uh, they were invented as a gift to women in childbirth, which doesn't seem adequate, but what do I know? Well, you know, what I do know is that I've witnessed the miracle of childbirth up close and personal several times now, and I got to say, I'm not sure a bagel is adequate compensation. (laughs) Those must have been some bagels in Poland. Cinnamon raisin, at least. And I also got to say that as an aside to this aside, uh, the other leaders left notes in the margins of my teaching arguing about the best bagel, disputing that cinnamon raisin was the best bagel, when, when clearly, objectively, cinnamon raisin is the best. Anyway... The legend of St. Benedict and the Raven is in the second book of Dialogues by St. Gregory the Great, and it goes like this. So there's a fallen priest who had become terribly jealous of St. Benedict. The priest had abandoned his faith, and as is often true of those who do such a thing, he wanted badly to damage and destroy the faith of others. So he bakes a loaf of bread and poisons it, and then he sends it to St. Benedict, maybe under the guise of letting bygones be bygones. The story doesn't say. Now, if this priest, if this priest were alive today, He would have just, you know, got on social media or made a podcast or something. But those resources weren't around in the 6th century, so you had to poison some bread. So meanwhile, St. Benedict is down the street in the monastery, and he had for some time apparently been feeding a raven from his own hand every single day as he had lunch with his brothers in the monastery. These are really smart creatures. I don't know if you know this about crows and ravens. I'm not making this up. Some of the smartest animals in the animal kingdom right up there with the great apes. Now, every day, this raven would show up through the window. Benedict would tear a piece of bread off of his own meal, and the raven would eat it. And it went on long enough for the two of them to develop this kind of human bird rapport, which is a real thing. Look it up. And on the day 
uh, Benedict opened the poisoned bread, he somehow, again, the story doesn't say, but he somehow knew immediately that something was awry, perhaps by the Spirit of God. He hands it over to the raven in the story, and he says, and I quote, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, take this bread and carry it to a place where no one will be able to find it. But the raven also realizes that the bread is poisoned, and hesitates and starts hopping around the table calling. So Benedict says, take the bread, do not be afraid, take it away from here and leave it where no one will find it. The raven lifts the bread, flies out the window. Three hours later, the bird returns unharmed and things resume as normal. It's a weird story, I know. But Benedict and the raven together became kind of a, a symbol of holy consistency, of mercy, of God's provision and his care and his protection. And so when you see St. Benedict depicted through art, through statues and etchings and portraits, he's often depicted with a raven. That jealous priest had sought to do Benedict harm because of Benedict's holiness, that he embraced this entirely different way of life amongst the alternative society of his brothers, the monks in the monastery. His friendship with an animal, with a raven, represents the generosity and kindness of God made manifest in his life, that it would even overflow to God's lesser creatures. And then, rather than seeking retribution against this man who had set out to kill him, Benedict absorbs this act of violence, neutralizes it, and commands that the weapon of violence be carried to a place where no one, not even the evildoer, would be able to find it. And then in the story, the bird comes back unharmed. Lunch the next days into the weeks ahead continues as it had done the days before and would in the days after. And in the story, all of this only happens in the context of a life rooted in that monastery day after day, holy consistency, day in and day out, seeking God with others, daily bread, generosity, the holy life of community. To guide and protect that way of life, St. Benedict is perhaps most famous for, his influence is most seen in, creating something called the rule. It's where we get the term, rule of life. And it's a text that is still used throughout churches and monasteries around the world today. What is the rule? We are, like Cam said, in an ongoing series about what it means to be a church at all, not a weekly event, not a subculture, but an alternative society. If you're not there already, go ahead and open your Bible to Romans chapter 12, Romans is one of the longest, most significant works of Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. So that's saying a lot. The church in Rome, when it began, was made up already of both Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish disciples of Jesus. But then a uh, little bit of a backstory. Uh, sometime around uh, or after AD 41, the emperor, uh, Roman emperor Claudius, he expelled all the Jews from Rome, Christian or otherwise. And then about five years later, the Roman Jews were allowed back into the city for the first time. And they found that during those years, the Christian movement, all Gentiles during their time away, had become thoroughly Gentilified. Um, so there was all this massive division splintering the church, debate and disagreement over whether or not they had to follow the Torah or whether or not Gentile Christians should observe the Sabbath day or eat kosher or get circumcised. So Paul wrote to this church, which had been splintered by division and disagreement, and he pleaded with them for, among other things, unity. That's some of the backdrop against which we read these words in chapter 12, 
beginning with verse three. Paul writes to the church in Rome, for by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members and each members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we Though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. And he goes on down the list. But then look at verse 9. He writes this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then finally, pay attention, verse 10, Be devoted to one another. In love, honor one another above yourselves. Now that word that my Bible translates as devoted is philostagros in Greek, and it only shows up once in the New Testament. This is it. Now ordinarily, it refers to the mutual love between parents and children, or the mutual love between wives and husbands. So this is the kind of devotion demonstrated by the closest possible familial ties. And that word that my Bible translates as honored is time in Greek, and it has to do with the fixed value of something, something that's always worth a certain thing. So Paul is saying, devote yourselves to one another, brothers and sisters in the church, the way that good parents devote themselves to their children, the way good husbands devote themselves to their wives and vice versa. That is the fixed value of Christian community, akin to the most important cherished, familial, and intimate relationships between human beings. And he's not assuming that things are perfect. Remember, he's writing to a church that is fractured by discord and disagreement and division. And even so, he says, devote, one of your, devote yourselves to one another at the highest possible level. Do good parents bail on their kids when things get hard or when tragedy strikes? Of course not into a church that, like any network of human relationships, has become fractured by disagreement and discord, Paul tells this community of Jesus' followers, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. What is devotion? I'm not sure that we know as Americans, as Westerners. You know, in 2017, a few friends of mine came together one evening to play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we figured we'd play every other week until the campaign I had written was over, but then we kept going. Uh, every two weeks, on Wednesday nights, give or take, we cover the table in snacks and uh, character sheets and dice, and we brew tea and we talk and we laugh and we slay monsters. Um, and then we kept playing as the years went on. Of course, at some point, you all have to get uh, matching tattoos. I think that's an important part of the, uh, the process. And then, the, you know, they made a movie, so we all had to go see that together. Somebody drew the glasses on Abby so she would match everyone else. <laughs> now, sometimes when we get together to play D&D, we get to talking so much that we forget that we're also there to play a game, and little to nothing gets accomplished in the campaign because we're just catching up with one another and laughing as we drink tea, so we call that T&D. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> over the course of these years, uh, a game night every other week with the same group of people became something more than a game night. So we started to have conversations about what it means to commit to one another on a deeper level and even share a rule of life. 
and push one another even deeper into a shared commitment to the way of Jesus? What if we set the bar this high and we all said we will do it? But to do any of that, you have to stay together. Among the old wisdom sayings of the 4th and 5th century Christian desert fathers and mothers, you can find this quote, which I think would be kind of controversial to the modern sensibility. Just as a tree cannot bear fruit if it is often transplanted, so neither can a monk bear fruit if he frequently changes his abode. Why would uh, such a saying generate controversy? I think because we, as modern Americans, do not like to imagine ourselves as beholden to anyone. I had a seminary class with a gentleman who was born and raised in Mexico one time, and he told me one morning in class that making the decision to come to Portland for grad school was extremely difficult. I said, how come? And he said, because he was really concerned about how his decision would be received by and reflect on his family of origin, his father and his mother and his siblings. What would it mean for the entire family that he chose this school in this city at this time? Huh, I thought. Because for better or for worse, I genuinely cannot imagine a world in which I would ever care even a little bit about what my family of origin thinks about any given thing that I do. In fact, uh, when I finished the whole school thing, my mom called me and pleaded, just give me enough notice to fly out and be at your graduation. It's been my lifelong dream to see such a thing, and your grandma wants to come. We cannot wait for this to happen. I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing the graduation thing. It doesn't sound like a fun way to spend a Saturday, and they make you pay for the little outfit that you have to put on. And she said, oh my God, please, I'll buy it. Just, I didn't go. I'm not doing that thing. And it's not because I don't love my family of origin. I do. I'm an American. I'm an individualist by default. And I was uh, not raised in a collectivist culture concerned for the community and the family and its shared values. And to a tremendous fault, I personally, at my worst, really don't think that much about what anyone else might think about me or what I do. There's some benefit to this sometimes, but also mostly a lot of bad. But by the grace of God and with your help as a family, I am being spiritually formed in this area, but I still didn't go to that graduation, and I would not do it again. So even if you're not as bad as me and you're not that inconsiderate about you know, what other people think, the majority of us are still all Western individualists. It's the air that we breathe. It's the culture into which we were born and raised for the most of us. So maybe you make some big life decisions based on other people. Maybe if you're super close with your parents, you want to live near them even as an adult. Maybe if your kids are like thriving in a certain extracurricular thing, you might rearrange your life and your schedule for their sake so that they can be involved. But imagine to orient your life around your brothers and sisters in the church, to consider where you'll be and what you'll do for the church's sake. Just as a tree cannot bear fruit if it is often transplanted, so neither can a monk bear fruit if he frequently changes his abode. St. Benedict took this idea very seriously. He didn't invent the idea of monks and monasteries, but he did change them in particular, with his three vows, the very first vow taken by a Benedictine monk is called the vow of stability. It is a radical commitment to a people and to a place that leaves the monk no choice but to take the bad with the good and to continue in love together. The vow of stability is the vow to spend one's entire life with the same community in the same monastery. 
In other words, be devoted to one another. Benedict observed other monks who kind of went from place to place, keeping their options open, an open-ended future, and he wrote, always on the move, they never settle down and are slaves to their own wills and gross appetites. Some things never change. Now, very few people I have ever met think of church as something to which they are devoted to its people and to its place. Instead, we are taught to think of church as something that should be devoted to us, sure, but not the other way around. We expect community to be prepared to carry our needs, but us, we leave if our schedule shifts. We expect the church leadership to make itself available to us, but us, we skip the Sunday gathering if it's warm outside. We leave if the church down the road meets at a time that's easier for our kids' nap schedules. We leave if the church across town has a better band. Or we leave if we have a falling out within our small group. Or we leave if the leadership makes a decision that we don't like. Or we leave if this or that pastor doesn't meet our felt needs according to our terms. And that's not hyperbole. I know some or many people who meet each and every one of those descriptions. And obviously, I'm critiquing them. But Please believe me, I'm not saying any of this to step on toes or raise hackles. I just want us to understand exactly how far removed the modern paradigm of church and commitment to church has drifted from its ancient paradigm of longtime faithfulness. The vow of stability was not invented as a critique of flakiness. It was not created to take a jab at transient Christians. It was created as a pathway to spiritual maturity. We grow in maturity of conflict resolution by resolving conflicts when just fleeing the conflict would be much easier. We grow in patience by bearing with those who hurt us or whose personalities challenge us when just cutting them out could be accomplished in an instant. We grow in depth of maturity and self-awareness when our desire to critique and correct others, when our focus on the things everyone else is doing wrong widens enough to include an honest awareness of our own sin and the role we play in the dysfunction of the church family. And look, I get it. This is a complicated tension. Most of us have been involved in more than one church, myself included, so we already understand, of course, there are reasons, practical, emotional, spiritual reasons, one might go from one community to another, but at the risk of sounding hardcore, I am convinced personally that we have become prone to assign spiritual values to decisions that could be, at times, at best, inconsiderate and immature, and at worst, selfish and destructive. Any church I've ever known has had once committed people decide to leave for one reason or another. That's life. It's not always a bad thing. Sometimes people move from one community to another, blessed by both communities because it makes sense within that life context, sure. And in any given church that I've ever known, they've had the occasional angry party 
read the riot act to the people in their community or to the church leadership before they go. This is how you blew it. This is how you failed me. So this is why I'm leaving. It's happened to every pastor I know, and it's happened to us. And in my experience, there's usually one thing in particular that sets some of those confrontations apart from others. So I've sat with many people who are hurt or angry, who confront either me or other leaders or people in their community about what they believe is some egregious error. And sometimes, quite honestly, they're right. And repentance needs to be uh, accomplished. And sometimes they're not right. That's the way it goes for everyone. But sometimes the confronting individual or individuals, even if they're emotional, even if it's really personal, will also acknowledge the wrong that they've done. And they'll make space to listen. And they'll receive apologies and they'll receive pushback. And that's really hard for almost anyone to do, including myself, believe me. But often, if not every time, at least in my personal experience, that person, the one who's prepared to give and receive accountability, is the person who stays. But sometimes things don't go as well. The confrontation only moves in one direction. One party becomes so preoccupied with the way they've been wronged that they can't make any space for accountability running in the other direction. And most often, that person is the one that leaves. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, anyone who's ever left our church fits some kind of stereotype or anyone who's ever left any church fits a stereotype. I'm just saying that this is something that I and other pastors I know have observed. On a Saturday, this Saturday, actually, Abby and I will have been married for 16 years, 19 years together as a couple. Oh, wow, yeah, we've reached the whistling age. Thank you. Um, and I remember just a couple years ago, it was our anniversary, we went out to lunch, and, uh, and we started laughing together in this little cafe in Portland because I was telling her how grateful I was that it sounded funny when it came out, but I meant it to be this sentimental thing. I said, like, God, I'm glad we're both Christians because we can't get divorced, you know, um, because we're so devoted to Jesus. As imperfect though we are, we're devoted to the teachings of Jesus, and we just genuinely don't think of splitting up as an option for addressing something like conflict or pain or disappointment. In marriage, not because we're so holy or because we we never blow it, we do all the time, but because this value has been so deeply instilled in us by our families and by Jesus Himself that it seems kind of like as far fetched as going to the moon to get away from the other person. It's just not something that we can do. It isn't on the table. And then we laugh together, saying, "Well, whatever it is that happens, we have to figure it out together. That's our only option." Now, stay with me on this. I'm going to follow this analogy into the weeds just a little bit. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament do, as many of you well know, allow for certain contingencies to ethically, if not regrettably, dissolve a marriage covenant. For example, if one spouse is unfaithful to the other, and if that spouse is obstinate and unrepentant, then divorce might be an option, although tragic and regrettable. Uh, abuse or abandonment, of course, are other such scenarios. But these are tragedies, and they should be navigated with wisdom and discernment, seeking God's spirit and community accountability. So in that same way, yes, there are, of course, tragic examples of sinfulness so egregious that one might need to sever ties with a certain church community. But... I wonder personally how often our culture rushes. 
In a world of ever-present social media kind of pseudo-therapy speak, the idea of mental health is being constantly redefined as what I believe is a doomed effort to create this safe space bubble in which nothing and no one ever bothers you without risk of being canceled and cut out from your life. And that's a big problem if you're a Christian or just a human, because you can only be a Christian with other Christians. You can only be a semi-healthy human being with other human beings, and life amongst humans will eventually bother you if you actually live it. In fact, Jesus' entire manifesto on what it means to be his disciples, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is all about relationships. And that means that you can't actually obey Jesus without relationships in which to carry out his way of life. To keep one's options open is a comfortable thing. Now, I'm not just talking about like an escape hatch for when and if church fails you. It will, by the way. Maybe that's not your style. Maybe you're, you're very unlikely to storm out in a blaze of, you know, assumed righteous indignation. But maybe you sort of think of church, even if only subconsciously, as one might think of a local gym, you know? It's great, but there's other gyms, and lots of them, in fact. And, and if I go somewhere else, I can just find another gym, even if it's hard to find one as good as my current gym. What does it mean to be devoted to one another and to consider these brothers and sisters of yours when you think about your future and the future of your family? What does it mean to think of life in terms of staying rather than wandering? Thomas Merton was uh, this eccentric writer and monk who moved into a monastery when he was 26, and his writing eventually afforded him international acclaim. And suddenly, world leaders were interested in who he was and what he had to say. He could have milked it for years, traveling the world as a much-sought thought leader, and, but he didn't do that because he had taken the vow of stability. So he stayed put in that one place until he was dead. Before he died, he wrote... By making a vow of stability, the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery. And you can switch that word for church. This implies a deep act of faith, the recognition that it does not much matter where we are or whom we live with. Stability becomes difficult for a man whose monastic ideal contains some note, some element of the extraordinary. All monasteries or churches are more or less ordinary. Its ordinariness is one of its great blessings. The New Testament goes on about our collective and inevitable need to bear with one another. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, that exact phrase gets repeated again in Ephesians 4. The English, bear with is the Greek anekomai. It means to be patient with, to put up with, to bear with. It even means endure one another. Good grief, does God know us already? Enough to preemptively command us, endure one another. And notice all this stuff that I've been on about tonight, from St. Benedict and the Raven to, to Romans, D&D, Thomas Merton, Ephesians 4, it all presupposes that you're here in the community of God's people, that you're rooted, the vow of stability. A few years ago, I was uh, praying one morning before sunrise. It was, it was a beautiful morning. So that means that it was not summer. And uh, 
I was looking out my living room window on a dark, wet street. And I wasn't depressed or anxious. It wasn't like a bad season. I wasn't navigating some kind of spiritual crisis. But part of me felt uh, disappointed in myself, I guess. I'm grateful for my life. It's a good one. I'm acutely aware of how good when I hold or wrestle my kids or when I laugh with my friends or when I kiss my wife, when I enjoy simple gifts like a, a good novel or a cup of coffee or being here on Sunday night with you guys, which is honestly something that I look forward to all week long. I'm aware that it's really good. But looking out the window that morning, I wondered if, and this is just part of my personality, but I wondered if I should have been somehow more at this point already. I wondered if I should have already contributed, you know, some substantial thing to all this that would assign some kind of lasting value to my life beyond its domestic simplicity. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but obviously we won't. And so maybe I was still learning that, I don't know, and I reasoned with God that morning, is there more is there more that I should be doing? I'll do it if you let me. And I had this vivid sense of his voice in that moment. And I was pretty sure it was him because it wasn't what I wanted to hear. Uh, and he, he answered my question with a question. What if, he asked me, this is it. What if all I ask is that you live on this quiet little street and this quiet little neighborhood and you raise your family as best as you can and you love me as best as you can and that's it? Well, I thought, that depends. Is that it? And then he didn't answer, which I'm sure is the answer. In a culture increasingly predisposed to imagine churches as akin to restaurants and community centers that exist in service to the consumer, what does it mean for us not just all Christians everywhere, but for us, Fan City Church, what does it mean for us to truly become the alternative society of Jesus? I know I can often sound hardcore about what it means to dedicate oneself to the church. Believe me, I've been told. But I, I have really not been, I am not interested in attempting to guilt anyone into being here. Such a thing is impossible anyway, and believe me, I've tried. <laughs> I want, sincerely, I want to honestly communicate the hope of Christian community, the beauty of a vow of stability, not just as some kind of like rebellion against flakiness and individualism, but as the way that we become more like Jesus. It's not a binding contract written in guilt etched with, you know, hasty promises that you'll never go anywhere else. You swear you will be devoted. It is the promise of hope and love to be devoted to one another. Like the guy sitting next to me in class who thought of his family as he was deciding where he would and would not go to school. What if we allow ourselves to be taught by God's Spirit to think of these brothers and sisters when we decide where we will and will not go and who we will and will not be? not because we need permission from one another to make major life decisions, but as a gesture of our devotion to one another. And I mean that in the small things we would be devoted to one another, like when we make our schedules, we learn to think of commitment 
the commitment that we have to this time and this place and to our Van City communities. I can't be somewhere else on Sunday. That's church. I can't miss community night. That's important. And I get it. You know, I work here, so obviously I'm going to say that. But honestly, long before I had a church job, that was a decision that Abby and I made for ourselves and our family that, believe me, I, I know that it's a decision other people aren't always thrilled about. We had a lot of these kinds of things like, hey, we want to do this family thing. It only works on Sunday. Can you please be there? No, we can't. We are committed to being at our church. Or, hey, I'm having my big birthday party on Sunday. We would love to be there any other time, but unfortunately, we can't. We've already committed to something else. But even more than that, beyond just the simple scheduling base level consistency of showing up, what about in the big things? What does it mean to be devoted to one another across the long timeline of the foreseeable future? So for almost 15 years, I traveled around the world as my job. Most, most months out of the year, I was gone. I was traveling. So I've been to like every major city, most of the minor ones. I've been across lots of countries, several continents. But really, I don't know a lot about any of those places that I've been. It happens in conversation all the time. People will tell me, oh, they're from this or that state or city. And then reflexively, I say, oh, I've been there a couple dozen times, actually. And then they light up. Oh, my gosh. Well, do you know about this place or that person or this thing? And I'm like, no, I don't know anything about that place. I, was, I mean, I was there lots of times, but for an evening. And then I left to the next place. My dad, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. He did not give a hoot about going anywhere. Like, he stayed in the same tri-county area his entire life. In fact, he only got out to go on a couple of cruises, which, let's be honest, was like a hotel in the water. And once, we dragged him out to the Pacific Northwest to meet some grandkids just the one time before he died, and that's it. And then, at his funeral, these people that I grew up around, that I'd known all my life, hadn't seen in years, they got up to talk about my dad, and their stories weren't like, oh, I'm the one guy who knew Jerry for four years when he lived in this different city for college. And they didn't say things like, oh, I knew him for this brief seasons when he moved up to Atlanta and lived there. They were men and women who had known him his entire life in the context of one community and one church, which flies in the face of many things that I have been led to believe my entire life. I have been sold wanderlust as something inherently virtuous and valuable as a staple of what it means to be an artist or an intellectual. I have been marketed transience as a resource of like the enterprising individual. Follow the career, upward mobility, the opportunities from place to place, never settle. To be mobile is to be cultured. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God will never call anyone to a lifestyle that takes them from place to place. Of course he might, and of course he does. And I'm not saying that there's no value in traveling and seeing or learning about new places. Of course there can be. But I want us to ask the question, what would it mean for us to invert that paradigm and think of transience as an exception to the otherwise consistent rule of devotion? How would our community and our church, our city really, be different if we became a people devoted to one another to the degree that we thought of this group by default as family and as home, as a good parent is devoted to their children, 
as a good husband is devoted to his wife and a good wife is devoted to her husband. And what if we assessed the value of seeing our children raised amongst the same faithful men and women year in and year out as they grow into adulthood together, that they might grow up with brothers and sisters of their own, that one, this is a dream of mine, that one day someone is going to ask my oldest son back, how old are you? I'm 18 years old. Okay, and how long have you known this friend of yours to whom, with whom you've been going to church? 18 years. What could we teach them about the beauty of Christian community across years of faithfulness through the good and the bad and the ugly, that they see us walk through the hardships of community without bailing out and know, I can do that. I saw my parents do it. I saw their friends do it. Because if I and we want to be spiritually formed over the possibly long timeline of our lives, we need the church and not just any group of acceptable Christians in our ever-widening list of options, but a family knit together in love across the hardships of long-term relationships. That rather than knowing lots of people and lots of places a little bit, we'd know and be known by a certain people and a certain place deeply. And maybe, possibly, the chaos of life might take us from one place to another. It happens. We know it does. But what if we sought over and against a culture of faithlessness and impermanence to put down roots for the sake of the family of God and for the kingdom of God, the vow of stability? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to guide and direct us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.